the book of Ezra here begins now kind of this section uh, that we're going to be looking at in the Bible here that deals with Israel's post-captivity, all right? We've been spending a lot of weeks or last few weeks dealing with historical books as we've been going through, you know, 1st, 2nd Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, looking at the history of Israel, looking at the various kings and the kingdoms and the division of the kingdoms. Well, now we get into another kind of historical book, but it's a section that's dealing with the post-captivity of Israel. It's a time where Israel began to return back to Jerusalem after their time of exile and captivity there in Babylon. 70 years they were there in captivity. Now they're making their way back. Here's some other post-captivity books that we have in God's Word. Uh, We've got Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, which again, these are all, you know, these historical setting books. And then we've got these prophetical books dealing with this time period of the post-captivity, and that's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, Ezra has been called, next to Moses, the second lawgiver, because he brought the law of Moses back to the people. And in addition, the book of Ezra has also been called the second great exodus. Because just as in the book of Exodus, Israel left slavery uh, in Egypt to go and worship the Lord in their new homeland, the land of, of Israel, well, so too in the book of Ezra, Israel left captivity in Babylon to go and worship the Lord in their homeland, the land of Israel once again. So here's what we're going to be looking at as we go through this book here tonight. This outline here is divided very succinctly, very neatly into two sections here. Chapters 1 to 6 deal with the national restoration uh, that's under Zerubbabel, led by Zerubbabel. And then chapters 6 to 10, or sorry, 7 to 10, deals with the spiritual reformation of the people under the leadership of Ezra. So you got national restoration, and then you got spiritual reformation taking place under the leadership of two different guys, Zerubbabel and then Ezra. So neatly divides up in this book here. Now remember, just as there were three deportations from the land of of Israel, from Judah, as they were taken away into captivity in Babylon, three different deportations, first one in 605 BC, then in 597 BC, then in 586 BC when the temple was destroyed. There were three groupings that were led away into Babylon, into captivity. Well, just as there were three deportations, there's also now going to be three different groups or three returns out of Babylon and back to Israel. The first return is going to be led by Zerubbabel, The focus is on rebuilding the temple. It's recorded, like I said, in Ezra 1 to 6. And then we see guys like Haggai and Zechariah, these prophets that are on this scene and instrumental in this time. And then there's the second return, which is led by Ezra, chapter 7 to 10 of the book of Ezra. The focus there, like we saw, spiritual reform of the people, concentrated on their covenant obligations And then the third return is going to be led under Nehemiah, which we'll get to next week, the book of Nehemiah. The focus there is on the rebuilding of Jerusalem, really securing the city walls there around Jerusalem, just fortifying that city. Nehemiah also took time to lead the people back into obedience of the Lord and the Word. And so, of course, that whole story is recorded in the book of Nehemiah. And then we see also Malachi touching on a lot of that that scene and situation going on there. So that's kind of how things break down. Now the history 
recorded by the book of Ezra covers a period of approximately 80 years. However, the book of Ezra treats only two comparatively short periods during that span of history because, like you see on here, there's a gap between Zerubbabel and Ezra. There's a gap of about 57 years that takes place from when the time the temple was built until Ezra returns. 57 years is a period of time where people just kind of began to sort of settle back into kind of complacency that Ezra has to come and sort of wake them up from, all right? And it's interesting that in that period, that gap period, is when the story of Esther takes place. Esther's back in Persia. And so we see the whole situation with Esther taking place, which we'll get to again down the road here, not too, not too long away. We'll get to the great story of Esther. So chapters 1 to 6 generally relate to the period from the decree of Cyrus in 536 B.C., and it leads us to the completion and the dedication of the second temple, which was completed in 515 B.C. And then chapter 7 and 10 deal primarily with the period of history beginning in, five, in 458 B.C. when Ezra was given permission to conduct a second expedition back to Jerusalem. So as we open this book, we see that it begins now, interestingly, the exact same way that the previous book, Second Chronicles, ends. In fact, just... If it's not already on that same page there, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Just look at that. Verse 22 and 23. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now just jump over to Ezra chapter 1 just to give you an idea. Like Again, uh, a lot of people wonder, you know, was Ezra the writer of this? For a lot of people, is reason enough to believe that Ezra was the writer of First and Second Chronicles because he ends Second Chronicles the exact same way that Ezra begins. And look at this, Ezra 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Verse 4, and whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now, we left off last week, Second Chronicles. We left off with the people of Israel being carried away into captivity into where? Babylon. Just making sure you're awake here. A couple of you are. The rest of you, it's all right. Have a nap if you need. People of Israel carried away off into Babylon. All right? That's where we left off. But now we see this man Cyrus is on the scene, and he's the king of Persia. So who is this Cyrus? How did he now get into the mix? Well, listen. After Babylon defeated the Jews and brought them back into Babylon, there were, of course, nations still jockeying for power. Babylon was the present world power at that time 586 bc but there's other nations remember babylon had overtaken assyria assyria had had overtaken the northern kingdom of israel 
So Babylon at the time is the world power, but now these, this Medo-Persian empire is on the rise. Now, we all know that God's the one that's in total power, right? He's the one that's in control of all these things, and all these nations are simply being used of God to carry out his plans and purposes. But you see, what happens in, in 539 B.C., God has Cyrus now, the head, the king of Persia, the, the, the leader of this Medo-Persian empire, and he comes up against Babylon. See, one night when the Babylonian king at the time, Belshazzar, is just throwing this incredible feast. Everybody's just getting drunk. Everybody's just getting hammered. They're just, you know, they're just having a huge heyday of a night. Well, it's during this time that Belshazzar is thinking, nothing can come against us. And he sees the handwriting on the wall, right? That this night, you know, your, your life is going to be, you know, uh, accounted for in a sense, right? And, and it's in that time, that night, that the Medo-Persians are making their way under the gate into the city. And they just overtake the Babylonians when they think that they're invincible, that nothing's going to come against them. God brings his army up against the Babylonians and now overthrows them. And we see all that in Daniel chapter 5, that party that Belshazzar is throwing. So when we get to Daniel, we'll cover that a little bit more. But you see, Cyrus was a unique man in that he was a man that God was going to use to aid his people Israel. And that was prophesied even 150 years earlier by Isaiah. That's amazing. Josephus tells us that when Cyrus made his grand entrance, Daniel, who was an old man at that point in Babylon, presented him with an ancient scroll of Isaiah. And in it was a letter addressing Cyrus by name. Like I said, what's even more amazing that Cyrus must have just blown his mind was that as his scroll is given, it's like, hey, this guy Isaiah lived 150 years ago. And he spoke about you by name. Tells us in Isaiah 44, verse 27 and 28. Who says to the deep, be dry and I'll dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasures, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. See, God, what we see in all this is that God is so in control. And he's moving all these nations around to accomplish his purposes to carry out his will, his plan. God's in control. And I'm sure the Jews, at times, were thinking there in Babylon, how are we ever going to get rid of this or get out of this? How are things ever going to turn around for us? They're sitting as captives in Babylon. They're taken away from their homeland. Their temple is destroyed. And I'm sure there are many times where they're thinking, how is this ever going to turn around? But little do they know that God is at work. And has been at work well before they even ended up in Babylon. Orchestrating, leading, bringing about all the key players and people in place to accomplish what he was going to do. Where he would one day have a man now come on the scene, be in charge over this Babylonian empire where the Jews were captive and allow them to be set free. You ever ask questions like that? How are things ever going to turn around? in my life. How, how is God ever going to break through? Man, understand that God is at work, and he's been at work even before you encountered those problems and situations, and he's already got the solutions in store, and all we need to do is sit there and trust him and see what he's going to do in it all. 
And, and, and again, we read there in, in verse 1 that all this was that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Jeremiah 29.10 says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. See, Israel's release from captivity was not God giving them a, a break for you know, good behavior. This is not God saying, okay, all right. You've proven yourself now. No, this is what he's already prophesied through Jeremiah. Again, we see the heart of the Lord and his mercy in planning ahead of time to deliver his people. It was those words that got Daniel praying, seeing that we're, we're approaching this, the end of this period. It got Daniel praying again for just God's will to be done here. So Cyrus is very different than other world leaders because when he conquered another nation, he would allow those that were captives in that nation to return back to their homeland. He wasn't interested in kind of keeping them around and just kind of exercising this kind of control over them. He was just very free in letting them return back. Again, God's using Cyrus to be his instrument now in releasing the Jews when that time was up and bringing them back to their land. And notice Cyrus doesn't just bring deliverance. He extends grace. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shezbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. All the treasures of the temple that had been stolen away previously by Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus goes, you know what? These are yours. These belong to you. You go ahead. Go rebuild your temple and take these treasures now and, and again, put them back where they belong. Cyrus was doing enough in just letting them return back to their land. These, he could have said, no, these, sorry, these are mine now, all right? I'm the king. These belong to me. But again, just not only bringing deliverance, but extending this grace. And I think it's just so, so wonderful when we look at what God has done for us, not only delivering us from sin, which is enough to say, I'm going to forgive you and give you life. But now he continues just to shower us with his grace and blessing, blessing that we don't deserve. That's what grace is all about. And I'm just so thankful for what God has done for us and what he continues to do. Because like I say, we, we would be content and satisfied if all he ever did for us was just deliver us from sin and give us life in him, life eternal. But no, he continues to just shower that grace upon us. So check this out now. Chapter 2, Ezra begins to make this list of all those who return to Jerusalem. And, and we get the total in, in chapter 2, verse 64. Verse 64, here's what it says. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,000. 337, and they had 200 men and women singers. So verses 64 and 65 give us the total number. Who's got that number? Who's good with math? Who's going to take a stab at it? Quick, add it up. 
test for you. Wake you up. Shout it out if you think you got it. Oh, that's good. Add those 200 at the end there, the singers. You're close. You're 200 off. 49,000 what? 897. There it is. Roberto's got it. He's good with math. I call him Rain Man. He's good with numbers. All right. You usually just pop that out like in a second, but all right. You're giving grace to everybody else to try to get it first. You're just sitting here going, come on, guys. He had that. He's like had that in a second. Okay. So 49,897 people return from captivity out of Babylon in this first grouping led by Zerubbabel. We saw a name there, um, Shezbazar, in those verses I read earlier. That's Zerubbabel. So in this first group of people, 49,897 people return. But you know what? There were at least a million that remained back in Babylon. There's a whole lot more than 49,897 people that were sitting captive in Babylon, sitting as exiled in Babylon, and yet only that many returned. What happened? It appears that as the people got settled in Babylon, they got comfortable with Babylon. You see, they weren't living as prisoners there, because honestly, when we talk about them being captive, it's like they're chained up, you know, they're in handcuffs, or they're bound to something that, you know, there's no freedom. Well, no, that's not necessarily the case. They were exiled there. They're in captivity because they're out of their homeland, but, but yet they had freedom to move around, to have homes, to get jobs, to start businesses. And when it came time for God to say, all right, guys, it's time to head home, many people simply said, I am home. I'm good here. I'm comfortable. I got all I need right here. Why do I need to return back? But you see, that was never to be the case. It's like that with a lot of Christians today. They've gotten very settled here in this world, but this world is not to be our home. A lot of people are quick to say, I'm at home here. And yet, that should never be the case. James 4, verse 4 says, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, don't, don't take this wrong way and think that we can't be friendly to the world and try to win the world. No, we're talking about getting comfortable in the world. We're talking about making this world our home, our priority. See, our view as believers is to be that of a pilgrim where we're just passing through. I love that idea of, uh, of you know, the patriarchs where they're referred to as these sojourners. A sojourner is one that's not putting down deep roots. They just lived in tents. Hebrews tells us that they were awaiting the city that was built by God. That was their homeland. That was what they were looking for. And as Christians, that's how we're to be pilgrims, sojourners, where we recognize that we're just simply passing through this world. This is all temporary. This is not what we're putting our hope in, our, 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 our trust in, our, our stability in. It's not in these things of the world. We got something far greater and better in the Lord. We're just passing through. It's not our home. We're quick to follow wherever God wants to lead us. 
You know, it may not always seem like the easy way or the comfortable way, but it'll always be the best way when we keep tracking with God. And these people here in Babylon, they just got comfortable. And they're going to miss out now on what God wants to do. It's a choice that we're all going to have to face at some point. Am I going to follow God? Or am I going to stay back in Babylon? So, though they're small in numbers, the people make it to Jerusalem. And we read in Ezra chapter 3, like at verse 1 and 2, when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So even before now, the building of the temple took place, and that's what, what they're going back to initially do right now. That's what Cyrus has given them, you know, uh, the decree to go and do even before the temple gets underway what are they doing they're building an altar they're establishing the altar which is the place of sacrifice and worship you know for many people the work of the lord falters because they haven't established that priority and commitment to the lord in their lives for many people it's what keeps them back in a place like babylon they'll say i don't want to sacrifice that i don't want to give this up i don't want to surrender that before the lord and they get held back. And the work of the Lord falters oftentimes. But the altar, the altar, you see, becomes that place to start in commitment to God. You know, when James Calvert went out to cannibal Fiji with the message of the gospel, the captain of the ship in which he traveled sought to dissuade him. Captain of the ship said, you're going to risk your life and all those with you if you go among such savages. Calvert's magnificent reply was, we died before we came here. That was his attitude. We've already surrendered our lives. We've already placed ourselves down on the altar because we're committed to do what God's called us to do. And whatever that means, it's okay because we've given our lives over to the Lord. It's a starting point for us. If we want to see a work for the Lord done, then we must be willing to, you know, lay our lives down and seek his will and way. Sacrifice doesn't mean a life of misery. On the contrary, I believe it's often the place of ultimate joy and peace. Romans 12.1, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable. Paul doesn't say, oh man, present your bodies a living sacrifice. I know it's going to be crazy. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard, but... It'll pass one day when we're in heaven. No. So th this is your reasonable service. This is, and, and for Paul, it's like, man, this is a joy to live this way. This is a blessing when we just give it all to the Lord and say, God, I'm living for you. I'm living your way. That's where we're going to see the greatest abundance of, of joy and blessing come when we live that way. Now, along with the altar and the sacrifices that are getting established here now, it also says that they observed the Feast of Tabernacles. And what a significant feast to remember because it was the Feast of Tabernacles where they commemorated their journeying through the wilderness after they left Egypt. And they saw how God began to provide for them as they traveled to the wilderness. 
Well, here again, now they're remembering, again, just God's provision and care after leaving Babylon and coming back to land. That was a tough journey. I'm sure a lot of people stay back in Babylon simply because they're going, I don't want to face that long road back to Jerusalem. But here they've seen and been able to testify of God's goodness and provision for them. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses Old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So listen. Here now, just the foundation of the temple is being laid. They're beginning to see how the structure is going to look. And there's great rejoicing taking place. People are beginning to shout out, praise the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever towards Israel. They're excited. They're pumped. They're like, man, this is great. I've only heard stories about the former temple, but now we're starting to see the new temple getting built. They're pumped. They're excited. They're shouting with praise and they're singing out. But there's another sound being heard as well. <laughs> it's the sound of weeping. People are crying. People that have witnessed the glory of the former temple and they're looking at this new temple thinking, oh my goodness, this is nothing like what we've experienced in the past. This is nothing like what we've had before. And they start weeping and they were weeping loudly that people weren't even able to differentiate between the rejoicing and the mourning, the grieving or the worship. It just began just to blend together weeping going on those people who had witnessed the glory of Solomon's temple saw the the pitifulness of the beginning of this new temple and they, they looked back fondly on former things and failed to see what God could do through the things that were before them now though it didn't look like much they were discounting what God was going to do now, before we criticize them, we need to ask ourselves how often we do that in our own lives. Do we ever just kind of write things off, thinking that God can't do anything with that? Oh, look at that. That's pitiful. God can't use that. Do we ever judge based on just appearances and externals and think, nah, that's not going to do anything. That's not going to make it. God can't work with that. How often have we been quick to write things off? Now take a look how this is dealt with in Haggai chapter 2. I'll put it up on the screen here. Haggai 2, verse 6 to 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, 
says the Lord of hosts. You see, the people who may have felt like they didn't have the resources to make this temple beautiful is reminded by the Lord that he owns the silver and the gold. This is all his. They'll never be without as long as they're working for the Lord and with the Lord. And the glory of this temple, it says there in Haggai 2, is going to be greater than Solomon's. Why? Because Jesus is going to be there. Jesus is going to come into that temple and he's going to teach and minister and heal even in that place. You know, you may see something in your life that you think is of little value. But guess what we get to do? We get to give it to the Lord. Say, Jesus, would you take this? Would you make this yours? Would you do something to this? Let Jesus touch that, use it for his glory, because he can take that which seems insignificant, weak, or small, and make it glorious. See, it's not the building, but it's who fills the building that matters. And through the prophet Haggai, the Lord says, man, the glory in this temple is going to be greater than the former. Where everybody thought, there's no way this is going to ever live up to the glory or the magnificence of Solomon's temple. And yet, God says, just wait and see what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the Messiah into this temple. He's going to fill it. His glory in living color in flesh and blood, is going to fill this temple. And he's going to do great things there. Allow the Lord to fill you, fill every part of you. Take ownership of your life and allow him to bring his glory into those things that you think have little value. Let him do a work through it. Now, as we step out to carry out the work of God, as these people are doing, altars built, foundations of the temple now are established. You can bet as you step out to do a work for the Lord, guess what's going to happen? The enemy is going to be right there to oppose it. The enemy is going to be right there trying to stop it and thwart it. It's what we see happening now in chapter 4. Warren Wearsby said, as soon as God starts to bless the enemy starts to battle. We know that when God acts, the devil's going to react. <laughs> That's what's happening here. We shouldn't be surprised when oppos opposition comes. In fact, I get a little worried when there's no opposition. So I'm wondering, am I doing anything for you, God? Am I doing a work here? Because I think opposition is something that we should expect when we're stepping out and moving out for the Lord. Anyways, these enemies of Judah use three tactics now against them. Three tactics that are often deployed by Satan. First of all, we're going to see in chapter 4, infiltration. Secondly, we're going to see irritation. And thirdly, we will see intimidation. Infiltr infiltration, irritation, and intimidation. Look at verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of, of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So this group of people who were living up in the north, they were transplanted of the Assyrian people, and they intermarried with people that were there in the land. 
And they became known as the Samaritans. Remember, the Samaritans and the Jews in Jesus' day would not have any interaction with one another. All right? The Jews saw the Samaritans as, as, you know, unclean people because of this kind of, they were a mixed race. And it's all happened here through the Assyrians, bringing people into land and beginning to intermarry here. And so they're coming now. And notice it says in verse 1 that they're the adversaries of Jude and Benjamin. Now their offer sounded good and pure, right? They're like, hey, guys, you know what? We got the same God. Let us come and help you. We want to be a part of this work you're doing. Sounds good. But they're identified as the adversaries. You know, 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, the devil doesn't always present himself as the boogeyman or the guy in the red jumpsuit and pitchfork, you know. That's not how the devil always appears. He appears as an angel of light sometimes, making you think like, hey, he just wants to be on your side. He just wants to help you out. He, he wants to appear as your, your friend, somebody that's going to make things better for you. That's why I think Peter says, listen, be sober, be vigilant. Because he's crafty, he's tricky. And he wants to infiltrate your ranks and come in a way that you think he, you're going to profit from him. But he's the adversary. When we see the enemy trying to get their way into our lives or into our business, we need to respond as these guys did. Look at verse 3 at the end there. Or in the middle of verse 3. They said, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. They're like, nope, sorry. You're not going to have any part in this because we know you're up to no good. So they recognize that. And we need to be on guard, be aware of the enemy's tactics in trying to infiltrate the ranks and doing so in a way that appears like he's trying to help. Secondly, we see their attempt of irritation. Look at verse 4. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. These guys that come in, in one moment saying, listen, we're with you in this. We want to serve your God. We want to help you in this project. They're refused. And now what are they doing? They're just... They just quickly turn. They're trying to frustrate them now. If the enemy can't infiltrate, he's going to try and frustrate. And they did this with causing problems in their building, trying to, you know, issue building permits or changing codes, hiring counselors to kind of thwart all their plans of building. Satan knows if he can frustrate you, then he can get you off your game. Get you distracted off the work that the Lord wants to do. There's a, there's a special role in hockey for these types of players. They're called agitators. And they're out on the ice to try to just get under your skin. They're going to try to whack you in the shins when the rest not looking. They're going to try to hold you and do things to try to do what? Get you off your game. Draw you into a penalty. Do things in a way where the ref doesn't see them, but they'll see you retaliating because you're getting frustrated at what they're doing. And you retaliate, suddenly you're the one in the penalty box. That's what Satan knows. 
if I can frustrate them, if I can get them off their game, it's going to put them out of commission for a little bit. And thirdly, we see the enemy's intimidation. We've seen his infiltration, his irritation, and now the intimidation. Look at verse 11. A letter goes out. Here's a copy of the letter that they sent him to King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they are not going to pay tax or tribute or custom and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. Let me just stop right there. Here's what the enemy does next. They write an inflammatory letter to the king of Persia. Their intent is to paint Israel as a disloyal, rebellious people. That is no interest in kind of being a blessing and, and, and supporting the king in his work. They're accusing these people falsely before Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. It's exactly what our enemy, Satan, loves to do. In fact, we're told in Revelation 12, 10 that he is the accuser of the brethren. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Going before God, telling him what a rebellious, wicked people we are. And you know what? He's not that far off on that statement. Right? The difference is, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. He's our defender. And in those moments that our name is getting dragged through the mud, we need to be sure that we put our trust in the Lord and know that he has our back, that he is our protector, that we're covered in the blood of Jesus. In other words, that we're standing in his righteousness, not our own. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts. Our, our battle is spiritual. But we got one that's fighting on our behalf, our advocate. And we need to trust him for these things. And we're going to see these men doing exactly that. Now, King Artaxerxes commanded that the people stop their work on the temple. So he's hearing this report. He gets the letter. He's like, oh, that yeah, that doesn't sound too good. Sounds like these guys are up to no good. Maybe I was wrong. So he tells them to halt, to stop work on the temple while he kind of goes through this stuff here. He gives a command in chapter 4, verse 23. Now, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim, Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the work's going to cease now for 15 years. And it's going to be a time where the people living in Jerusalem are going to feel defeated and discouraged. Even though everything they've done until now has been simply following God's word, God's command. They haven't been stepping out in the flesh. They haven't been doing anything wrong. They've been following and obeying the Lord, and yet they're still finding themselves in this predicament. Those are tricky places to be. Where suddenly you see, Lord, What's happening? Have I not been faithful in just serving you? Have I not been doing everything you've simply called me to do? And yet, why does it seem like the enemy is gaining ground? 
why am I in this predicament, this, this circumstance that is less than ideal? Well, listen, this stall, this stall is not any sort of punishment against them. It's just simply God's timing being worked out. And when we find ourselves in those situations where we're wondering, God, why have things kind of stalled here? Why are things in this situation? They're not times for us just to pack it up or give up. Don't allow yourself to get stagnant when God's timing says, wait. Rather, stay active. Keep serving him and worshiping him. It's sad to think of Christians that have stopped living for the Lord because they thought, you know, he was going to return by now. We've been talking about the Lord's coming and, and nothing's changed. Is there any use? Is there any point? Man, God's accomplishing his purposes in his perfect timing. It's not always our timing. Don't give up. Don't question what the Lord's up to. Just keep being patient and serving him and worshiping him, trusting him. This is where these people now went wrong because they now become inactive altogether and God had to call them on it. So we see in chapter 5 that God raised up prophets now. Prophets to come and encourage them and challenge them. And the people responded. They got busy. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So here we see God is faithful. He brings people along to encourage them, to challenge them, to kind of wake them up from this place of complacency, and they get busy. And the prophets are even right there working and serving, getting right in the mix. How important that is that we just come alongside one another and get in the mix of just being a support in serving and carrying out God's work here. And that's what we see happening here in chapter 5. And there, even though they got a command from Artaxerxes, cease the work they got a higher command from god to build the temple and so they go about carrying that out well as this is going on now well again the enemies are seeing all this and they're thinking whoa hold on they're getting back to work well they've been told not to do so now they've been sitting idle for 15 years it's been a while now they're getting busy again but so now another letter goes back and this time darius is the new king and in Persia. And a letter goes to him saying, hey, these guys are continuing on the work. And they begin to go through a bit of a, a history now of Israel, detailing, you know, how they ended up in Babylon, how they returned back because Cyrus the king had issued a decree for them to go back and build the house of God. But then Artaxerxes told them to stop and all these things. And so all this word is going back to Darius. And Darius kind of hears about this and he's wondering, Wait a second now. How's this all happened? He's wondering, who's this Cyrus? And, and did he really, well, he knows who Cyrus is, but he's like, did he really issue this decree? And he wants to find out about this. So he begins to get things checked out now. Like at chapter 6, as they get, they search through the archives, and sure enough, this decree is found, it's written on a scroll, and it comes back to Darius, and Darius realizes that, that 
the Jews have been given this word to do it. We can't go back on it now. The decree has been given by the king. And so they're in their right in doing so. And so chapter 6, verse 13, we read this. Then Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, Shetharboznai and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they built and finished it, the temple, according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Verse 18, they assigned the priests to their divisions, and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast, the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So here they are now. The temple is built, it's finished. They're offering up great sacrifices to the Lord, and the Passover is observed. Passover is observed 900 years after the first Passover was celebrated. It marked, once again, a delivered people and a set-apart people who are in fellowship with God. And look at what the byproduct of all this is. Joy. We just see that repeated over and over at the end of verse 16, uh, that they celebrate the dedication of this house of God with joy. We see it in verse 22. That there were seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful. This is the byproduct now of a people that are just setting themselves apart for God, carrying out the work of the Lord, and there's joy. I think that's always the way it is as we set ourselves apart to the Lord, to carry out the Lord's work. You want to be a joyful people? Man, just get busy serving the Lord. The byproduct of that is going to be joy. Carrying out God's work and will in your life. And then we see Ezra now, chapter 7, making his way to Jerusalem with another group of people. Ezra was from that priestly line of Aaron. He was one of the few faithful priests. His time in Babylon didn't, didn't keep him from the word. It kept him in the word. And we're going to see that fruitful ministry of Ezra flowed from faithful ministry. Fruitful ministry flowed from that faithful life that Ezra lived out before the Lord. So Ezra, he gathers the people together that would make this trek back to Jerusalem from Babylon. It was a lengthy trek. And the number now that's gathering together with Ezra is 1,772. Significantly less than went the first time. 
a significant drop. But regardless of who is with him, Ezra knows that God is with him, and he wants to establish this with the people and before the Lord. So look at chapter 8 now. Chapter 8, verse 21. Here's Ezra now gathering together with the people that are with him to really just, again, consecrate themselves before the Lord because Ezra's going, doesn't matter who's with us. What we want to be sure about is that the Lord is with us. So here we read in verse 21 of chapter 8, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. So they set out, and they arrive in Jerusalem. And Ezra now, as they arrive in Jerusalem, he's greeted by the leaders with some not-so-great news at this point. Because remember, there's been a period now from when the temple was built to when Ezra comes back to Jerusalem, a period of 57 years. That's a long time. It's a lengthy time that's unfolded. And so look at what we see happening now among the people. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the, Ammon, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, Ezra says, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. So like I said, it's been 57 years. And what have we seen happen? We've seen people now, again, begin to get comfortable and begin to slip back into compromise. People began to intermarry with those that they had no business being a part of. And it was right there in God's word for them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 to 4. God had said when they come into the land, that they're not to mix with these nations, these nations that we just read here in Ezra 9. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. God said, don't get involved in marriage with these neighboring pagan nations. Don't mix with them. Because they're going to turn your hearts away. Is that what we saw happening with Solomon? With his many wives? And then leading the nation of Israel or beginning to adopt the idolatry of these nations? God says, this is exactly what's going to happen. And it's going to cause me to have to respond to that. Now, perhaps the people sitting in Jerusalem now, 57 years after the temple had been rebuilt, are beginning to think, well, that law, that Deuteronomy, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty outdated now. I mean, this is a new era. This is a new time. 
We don't have to, surely we don't need to live by that any longer. That doesn't apply to us now, does it? And yet it's God's word that doesn't change. And it's sad when, when we see people think that the culture needs to dictate how we interpret scripture. But God's ways are always best. And what he says, he says for our good. And, and, and there's a lot of people today that are trying to now fit scripture or, 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 you know, apply scripture through the lens of culture and go, well, you know, the days are different and we don't need to do that. But yet within God's word, we see principles that are eternal, that, that are lasting, that, that have benefit to us as we live them out. You see, Israel was to be a distinct people, right? God had a special purpose for Israel in bringing the Messiah through. And that's what, what they're even saying here to, to Ezra, that our holy seed is mixing with the people now. They recognize that God had set them apart to bring the Messiah through, to carry out his purposes. They were to be holy, set apart to God. You know, to be distinct, though, doesn't mean that you have to be distant. But we as believers should be different. Our values, our priorities, our loyalties are not always going to match up with the world. But again, like we've seen earlier, we're to be pilgrims, sojourners just passing through. This world is not our home. And we're going to have a different set of values. We're called to be a holy people that are set apart for the Lord, that are upholding God's word. And seeking to be instrumental in culture and seeing them one for the Lord rather than trying to adapt to the culture or change God's word to fit the culture. So as Ezra comes back, he sees that the people, they're no longer living with any distinction. And he's grieving over this sin. I mean, he's like pulling out his beard level of grief. That's, that's pretty strong, right? That's right. You don't want to be trying that, man. That can't be feeling good. But this is how gripped he is at the, at the weight of this sin. That's huge. But, you know, we too should have a, a heart that grieves over sin and not be quick to dismiss it. Because it's sin that keeps people from God. And that should cause us to grieve over it, to have a heart that says, man, these people are missing out. Sin is robbing them from God's best. And we should grieve over that when we see sin leading people away from God. You know, Ezra says as much as that at the end of this prayer here in Ezra 9, verse 15, where he says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Ezra saw that this sin had consequences, that it had kept them away from God. It kept them from God's best. Well, let's see how the people respond here. Chapter 10. Now, verse 1, when Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now 
there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So here what we see is that the people now, as Ezra is praying, grieved over the sin, interceding, no doubt. People here come freely confessing their sin. And when people are ready to deal with sin, that's when hope is realized. I love what, what this man says here. Yet now, at the end of verse 2, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Why? Because they are confessing. They're confessing. They're repenting of this. They're realizing that they're in error, and they're bringing it before the Lord, and they know that when they confess, God then is able to heal and bring hope. So the people gather together, and they realize that they're, they're in error. They've taken pagan wives, and this is not going to be a good thing for them. And they need to put away these wives, and so they gather together to do just that. And so we see that they put away their wives and they leave those relationships that are hindering their relationship with God. Now, I know some of you might be looking at this and attempting to use this as a proof text to get out of a marriage that you think may be holding you back in your relationship with God. So you might be going, ah, well, it's there in the Bible. I guess God does condone divorce. But you see, look at what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12 to 13. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. See, here's the great thing. Now, we live under the age of grace. We're not required to put away a spouse for reasons like in Ezra's day. See, the book of Ezra is about putting away the things in our lives that stem from our flesh, the things that get in the way of us living in and worshiping God more fully. Yeah, we're to live distinct in this world and be set apart for the Lord. So the lesson is put away compromise. Put away the things in your life that are holding you back from God's best and establish yourself in Him. Renew yourself in Him. They come back. They build an altar Committed to the Lord, they build the temple, the place of worship before the Lord. That's what God would have for us. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you here tonight, and we just are grateful for time spent with you in worship and looking through your word. And these lessons that we learn in the book of Ezra. No doubt have application for us today how we can be those that can get very complacent and, and settle into a, a life of mediocrity and, and, and putting roots down where they don't belong. <laughs> Lord, help us to see the lessons for us in this book tonight and to be those that are living wholeheartedly committed to you, laying our lives down that we might be here established in you, that we might be moving forward and just being worshipers of you,
God, I pray that you would continue to draw us closer to you, Lord, and strengthening us in you. So equip us and lead us on here tonight. Lord, I pray that you give everybody safe travel back home on the roads tonight. Just provide and protect us now, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.